It's hard to believe that a half century ago, before Richard Nixon went to Beijing to shake the hand of Mao Zedong, the two nations did very little trading. These days, China is our number one trading partner and holds more of America's debt than anyone else. If you try to purchase almost anything except food or fossil fuel, you'll have a hard time not buying something manufactured in China. Meanwhile, we read of Chinese efforts to steal manufacturing secrets and the Communist Party limiting access to its markets while spying on citizens both here and there. How should we view Chinese government actions? Weighing in on that question is Isaac Stone Fish, a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and former Beijing correspondent for Newsweek. He knows China, having lived there for six years as a correspondent, while speaking fluent Mandarin. Mr. Stonefish is a senior fellow at the Asian Institute, and his new book is titled America Second, How America's Elite Are Making China Stronger. Isaac Stonefish reveals a vast network set up to further Beijing's influence in America. It's been built quietly up through the likes of Henry Kissinger, the Bush family, Disney, among many, many others. Orville Schell, director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at Asia Society, says this fascinating book concludes that the best lobbyists for the Chinese Communist Party in the U.S. have not been its propagandists or even PR agents hired to do its bidding, but self-justifying American businessmen. There are challenges being posed to the U.S. by China. That much is clear. How to best deal with those challenges is controversial. To delve into the controversy, we are pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Isaac Stonefish. Thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> Good to be here. Well, you make a large point in the book that China, quote-unquote, is not synonymous with the Chinese Communist Party. Can we start with that distinction? As we've seen with the U.S. government and then governments around the world, there's so many people inside China who are very frustrated with the party, want to distance themselves from the party, don't represent the party. And for the United States to have a clear-eyed view of China, it is really important to know where the country stops and the party begins. Well, not too long ago, when someone talked about the China lobby, they meant influencers acting for what we now call Taiwan. But uh, the shoe's been on the other foot for a while now. It has. So the Taiwanese lobby was so incredibly influential in D.C. until the mid to late 90s, or arguably even the early 2000s. And it's still influential with Congress. But Beijing and the amazing success story of the Chinese economy and Chinese influence operations have led to a D.C. that until several years ago had a very strong and influential Chinese lobby, both in the U.S. business community and with some Chinese actors themselves. I suppose people that are old enough to remember that Dick Nixon was certainly supported by the Chinese lobby. And when he wound up going over to, to, to shake hands with Mao, that shook some people up. It definitely did. One aspect that has dominated the discussion of, of U.S.-China relations now for quite some time has been the supposition that uh, economic growth through trade is going to make China more democratic. But I think it's fair to say it hasn't worked out that way. Very much hasn't. So it's useful to do a little overview of, of U.S.-China relations and the history there. So the first period with Mr. Nixon going to China was let's push back against the Soviet Union, let's bring China back into the fold. But then the Soviet Union fell in 1989, same year that Beijing opened fire on unarmed protesters in Tiananmen Square. And the U.S. government and the business community needed another reason to push for trade with China. And so the idea they came up with was, oh, well, trade will liberalize. Trade will bring democracy. 
And as we know very clearly with our hindsight, that was far from happening. Yes. I, I, I want to ask about something that's a little bit complicated that, uh, well, we got time, but China operates state enterprises. A lot of people look at China and say, my God, they're model capitalists. China rulers, of course, say we're communists. So it's important to keep in mind that what's going on over there is kind of a hybrid operation. Government keeps a hand in everything. How do you, how do you sort that out? Beijing, from a government perspective, practices a communist or a Leninist or Stalinist model, depending on who you're listening to. And the economy is state-led capitalism. And it's a far more successful economy than the Soviet Union ever was. But Beijing makes it clear that companies are supposed to serve the interests of China and serve the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And while they still have a lot of economic trappings of the Soviet Union, like five-year plans, like state-owned enterprises, some of those don't get implemented in the same way. Five-year plans, for example, change very radically after they come into fruition. So they'll make the plan, and then Chinese entrepreneurs and Chinese business people and Chinese officials will interpret, quote-unquote, the plan in very different ways. But in other ways, it is a very much still a Leninist economic model with the way that the party has such deep influence in corporations in China. I was intrigued to note in your book that uh, you were talking about certain Chinese businessmen, how if you if you listen to what they say in English about their goals and things, it's one thing. If you read and listen to what they say in Chinese, which you can do since you speak the language, you get you get quite a different picture. Beijing excels at different messaging for different audiences. And we're seeing this today with the war with Russia and Ukraine, where Beijing internationally is talking about peace and prosperity and globalism and not taking sides. And then domestically to Chinese audiences, is blaming the war in the United States and being supportive of Russia. Well, I want to talk more about that before we finish. But but um, one thing that really the thing that I think has really stunned me in reading your book was um, this powerful influence that we can we can attribute to Henry Kissinger of all people, who's played a role in advancing the cause of China. Kissinger claims he works to benefit China and the U.S., but I think. Uh, you would agree that the only thing certain about his work is that it benefits Henry Kissinger. You talk a little bit about, about Henry the K. So I was so surprised as I started reporting and writing this book to see him everywhere. And I learned that the problem with Kissinger was not what he did in office with China when he was Secretary of State, National Security Advisor in the 70s, but rather what he did since starting his consulting company in 1982. And for so long, Kissinger has been a businessman masquerading as a diplomat. There's nothing wrong with being a businessman. I run a consulting company. A lot of people in this field do. The issue is when you hide your interests and you're deceitful about what your goals are and you advance the cause of the party in a way that's harmful for U.S. interests. And throughout the book, I try to very carefully make a case for how Kissinger did that and why. I, I just, again, I, I just I, I was astonished thinking of Henry Kissinger as, you know, a guy that ran a secret bombing campaign, bombing uh, Laos and Cambodia, killing at least 100,000 people, fighting the communists, now as a friend of the Chinese communist leadership. It's funny. It's, it's a world of strange bedfellows. 
Well, like Kissinger and the late Madeleine Albright, you too have founded a firm to assist American enterprises in dealing with the Chinese. It's named Strategy Risk. It's uh, it's clear from the book um, you don't maybe see some of these head, headline uh, items as, as important as people think, but others are maybe underappreciated. C- can you sort out uh, your hierarchy of, of issues? I think there's a major risk coming from regulatory changes, not only in the United States, but in Beijing. There's whole raft of new regulations and new ways of interpreting regulations in China that really restrict the ability of private businesses to operate and really try to tether business goals with state goals. I think the U.S. government has made it very clear in a way that businesses are only now beginning to appreciate how difficult they're going to make it to engage with or trade with Xinjiang, a region in northwest China where upwards of a million Muslims and others have been held in concentration camps. I think the other area of big risks that get underappreciated is the risk of working with Chinese military companies or companies that do business with China's military. And I think that's a big risk, not only because U.S. regulatory scrutiny and U.S. consumers not necessarily wanting to buy goods that also benefit China's military. But as we've seen with the war with Russia and Ukraine, there's a growing awareness that, oh, gosh, if Beijing does decide to seize Taiwan by force, there could be some pretty rapid decoupling between the U.S. and Chinese economy. I've had some chip people tell me that, uh, that the best chips are being made in Taiwan, and they, they pointed out that if, if there is a, an invasion of Taiwan, that itself is going to be uh, hugely important to the world economy. That is. It very much is. And I, I think we have to understand that the war in Ukraine is absolutely atrocious and tragic, but Taiwan is so much more central to U.S. geopolitical interests and China is so much more central to U.S. geopolitical interests than Russia is. And so if China does try to seize Taiwan, it really will be an epochal event. And how the U.S. responds will be the biggest determining factor on whether or not Beijing is successful. Well, you spent some time in the book on the the party's efforts to control the American film industry. The Chinese see that uh, the, the power that film has to influence opinions, and they want to do it their way. And it looks like they've had a lot of success doing that. They have. And it was another story that really surprised me as I was reporting through it. But since the year 1997, when Hollywood made three films that Beijing decided to find offensive, films mostly forgotten today, Kundun, Red Corner, and Seven Years in Tibet, Beijing has been implementing a very thoughtful and subtle strategy to change the way that Hollywood portrays China. And it's not something that happened overnight. It was a long process, a lot of give and take. But we're in a situation today where Hollywood is petrified of offending Beijing and produces censored content that is really a disservice both to American filmgoers but also to Chinese people because it doesn't attempt to tackle or portray China as it really is, but this very sanitized version. American universities, I think, have taken something like 300,000 Chinese students. I know there was a lot of criticism here in California when they admitted that, well, since the foreign students pay a lot more, the UC system would profit from substituting California students from Chinese, uh, although they, they, didn't, they never phrased it quite that way. How do you view this, suit, this huge student influx in America from China? 
it's a very thorny issue because on the one hand, it's wonderful that so many Chinese students choose to come to the United States and there's a lot that American universities gain that's not just financial out of that injection of diversity. On the other hand, Beijing has shown itself really willing to use Chinese students as pawns in this geopolitical game. A small minority of Chinese students spy on other Chinese students, report other Chinese students, and create an environment that is inimical to free debate. And it's it's really challenging because universities have a mandate and an ethos to support free debate and support globalization. And it's difficult to know how exactly the right way to square those circles. Your book makes passing mention about sort of a, uh, something that's rather famous in, in, in small circles in America, that uh, back in the 1950s, the Chinese rocket industry got a giant boost when the U.S. deported a man who was not a communist but sort of in retribution, wound up helping the Chinese Communist Party's missile development. Uh, is, is there a potential for that sort of mishap to happen again? I'm glad you brought that up. I end my book, America Second, with the story of the rocket scientist Chen Xuesun, very, very brilliant man who was falsely accused of being communist, like you said, went to China, became a communist, not only helped develop China's nuclear weapons program, but also contributed in a very, very sad and, and meaningful way to the Great Leap Forward, which is a massive famine, a state-created famine under Mao in the late 50s and early 60s. And it was such an ethical and strategic mistake for the United States government to deport Chen during that period. And I bring him up today because while we're having the conversation about pushing back against Beijing and pushing back against Chinese influence in the United States, it's really important to remember that the way to win this battle, both ethically and strategically, is to respect Chinese, respect Chinese Americans, and to be able to fight back in a way that's non-discriminatory and non-racist. We're speaking with Isaac Stonefish about his new book, America Second, How America's Elite Are Making China Stronger. Donald Trump's labor secretary, Elaine Chao, she's married to minority leader Mitch McConnell. I, I would think that somewhere if we're talking about America's elites making China stronger, that couple might have to come up in the discussion. I do mention them briefly in the book, and I mentioned her sister, who I believe was on the board, maybe still is, of a major Chinese SOE. And it's such a difficult issue, too. You know, where do you draw the line between, say, uh, the leader and his wife, and then their family. And I, I think McConnell has very cannily distanced himself from positions that could be seen as pro-Beijing. I think he's savvy enough of a politician to understand which way the wind is blowing. I wanted to return to note about student spying. Um, it's one thing to talk about how, you know, they might steal something here or, or take, it, take it back like that rocket scientist did. But it seems like it's a cold, hard fact that uh, there's spying going on both on Chinese students and their instructors here in America. There is, and it's such a difficult issue because we don't want to stereotype and we don't want to discriminate against Chinese students. I think what we want to do is figure out how do we have a classroom environment where the teachers and students don't have to be afraid of being spied on and they don't have that chilling effect on campus. And what I would implore universities to do is do a much better job initially of screening out Chinese students who, say, 
have connections to the Ministry of State Security, have connections to the military, work on professors who you might be hiring who have spent time in those organizations. Because the U.S. government, if it gets more involved in universities, would do a very ham-fisted job at managing this. Universities would do such a better job, but they do need to do something to show the U.S. government, even under Biden, it's not just under Trump, show the U.S. government that they don't want to facilitate this kind of intimidation in their classrooms. I had to ask you at least one question about the Confucius Institutes. I was confused when these started popping up everywhere. There was there was one at UC Davis for a while. They were an arm of the Chinese government, and, and they were designed to provide money to U.S. institutions of higher education. Where do they stand? So I have a controversial view on them, which is I support them as the least bad option. Okay. I think it's so important that American students learn Chinese. I think that if the U.S. government intends to force the closure of all or most Confucius Institutes in the United States, great, step in and provide the funding for universities to study Chinese and to teach Chinese. And I'm a lot less worried about universities like UC Davis or Columbia or Harvard and their ability to teach Chinese and and much more universities like the University of New Hampshire, smaller, less wealthy state schools. I worry that learning Chinese would just be the province of the wealthier or the more elite universities in the United States, and I think that really does a disservice. So Caduceus Institutes, I would say, are really problematic, but they are very much better than nothing, especially in a world where Beijing is so paranoid about COVID that it's nearly impossible to go to China to study. Well, it's clear from your book that the China's government is extraordinarily concerned about how the world thinks about it. Uh, you devoted a lot of time to that, uh, how China rewards its friends, punishes those who irritate it. Uh, do you fear any retribution for this book? So I am not going back to China anymore, and <laughs> it's sad. I, I do love parts of the place. I spent most of my 20s there, but the risks for me are too high. That said, it is easier for me. I don't have any family in China. My career is now on the other side of the China debate. And I I do really empathize with all of those folks who are stuck either in China or out of China and are so much more constrained by what they feel like they can or can't say. So it is easier for me in the position that I sit. I had to ask you that question because when I was reading the book, I was sort of stunned to see you openly state that the best course for China is going to be to relieve the Communist Party of power. That that can't make them too happy in Beijing. No, I don't think it will be. I, I, I do feel like the way that this usually works is is people don't read the books. They just read the titles of the books and possibly the subtitle. So I'm glad you brought up that point. It is a point that I believe and stand by. But I do feel like oftentimes what gets attention isn't the small pieces of the book, but how people frame it more broadly. So, you know, it is possible that I I could go back to Beijing and and be entirely safe. But yes, I do speak out a lot on the situation in Xinjiang. I I do talk openly about the possibility of the party losing power. And yeah, those, those are things that can make someone persona non grata in communist China today. Well, there are a lot of people here in the U.S. Ca- are calling out China, demanding we do something about it. Uh, it's pretty clear you don't think a lot of them have it quite right. So um, 
what do you say to people who you know support Donald Trump type efforts to to move against trade and sort of make vaguely racist suggestions? I, I would remind them that we do need, if not unity, but consensus among a lot of different stakeholders in U.S. society, and making vaguely racist remarks is really going to alienate folks on the left, especially on the progressive left, and is really going to hurt the movement. And I compare it to climate change. If you're arguing with someone, you believe in climate change like I do, and you're arguing with someone who doesn't, you can't just keep saying, hey, you're an idiot. Why do you not get this? You need to have different rhetorical tacks to do it. And I think that's really important with the China debate as well. I I think framing it in such a way that doesn't allow a detractor to say, hey, no, this is just racist, this is just Trumpian, is a far more effective strategy than using race baiting or using coded language to talk about it. Well, you alluded to the war in Ukraine earlier and and, and how the China is covering it. It's it's a strange thing, these three parties involved, China, U.S., Russia. You don't have a crystal ball like anybody else, but I would ask you, how do you see this playing out? Gosh, that's such a good question. And with the heavy caveat, like you said, predictions are, are nearly impossible. I do feel like Beijing wants to prolong the war. I do feel like they feel like they benefit from U.S. distraction, EU distraction. And they're trying to see if they can prolong the war while still maintaining relatively decent images in the U.S. and EU's eyes. And I do wonder if those continue to degrade and if if Europe really starts to see China as a facilitator or even worse, as a combatant in this battle, if that'll cause Beijing to pull back or if it'll cause them to go deeper in. Very difficult to say. Well, I guess my final question is to ask you to look forward in the future and just say, where do you see the U.S. and China relations winding up some years down the road? Gosh, I I think things are going to be quite grim for the near term. I I think the midterms are going to bring up a lot of conversations that are very negative towards China. And I do wonder what's going to happen with both the Chinese Congress later this year, where it seems very, very likely that she will remain in power. But I wonder how and what types of roles. I think the stronger he is, the worse U.S.-China relations will be. Really wonder who wins in 2024 and what kind of stamp they'd put on U.S.-China relations. But I I definitely don't have an optimistic view in my crystal ball for U.S.-China relations. The book is titled America Second, How America's Elite are making China stronger. We recommend, dear listener, that you do read it in full. Uh, our author, Isaac Stonefish, has presented more details than we can really possibly cover in a brief interview. Isaac Stonefish, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for the chat. I appreciate it. program which was produced like like all of them are by edward mcmillan our thanks once again to isaac stonefish for 
educating us about China, and to our good pal, Dr. Andy Jones. Our thanks also to Guy, who's been board-watching for us. And our thanks to Public Affairs for having us back on. On next week's program, we plan to speak with local water activist Dan Bacher. Dan's always entertaining. And law professor Stephen J. Harper, who will be talking to us, we presume, about what's going on with Ginny Thomas, what's going on with election chicanery, what's going on with the Department of Justice not indicting Donald Trump, and how it is the um, DA in Manhattan seems to be giving the whole prosecution a pass as well. Oh, and the relationship of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, uh, that may come up too. We got a lot of material that we did not get to in today's program, so lucky for you, we think, we're going to put that in another segment, which will be available on our website at radioparallax.com. We may be doing some extras like that in the future because, well, because we can. I'm Douglas Everett. In case you weren't paying attention, this is Radio Parallax. We will see you soon, next week, in fact. <laughs>